Blog Talk Radio. This is Amanda, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm joined tonight by my wonderful co-hosts, Catherine and Jean. Hi, ladies. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Um, And we are also joined tonight by our very special guest, Dr. John Kelly, from the Recovery Research Institute, which is housed within the Department of Psychiatry at the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, Hello, Dr. Kelly. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. We are um, absolutely thrilled to have you on the show tonight. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. Um, So tonight we're going to be talking to Dr. Kelly about changing the stigma of addiction through science. And um, many people think that recovery from drug and alcohol addiction is a lost cause when in reality there are approximately 25 to 40 million people who consider themselves to be in active, stable, long-term recovery. Based on those numbers, most people probably interact with someone in recovery on a daily basis, but they don't even know it because it's not talked about openly. Dr. Kelly and the Recovery Research Institute's mission is to change that stigma and show people through science that recovery is not only possible, but is the likely outcome. So on this episode, we will talk to Dr. Kelly about addiction, stigma, and recovery, and how understanding the neuroscience of addiction will help alleviate that stigma. So I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Kelly. Um, He is the Elizabeth R. Spallen Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at the Massachusetts General Hospital, the program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service, which is also called ARMS, and the associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine at Mass General Hospital. Dr. Kelly is president of the American Psychological Association Society of Addiction Psychology and is a fellow of National Drug Control Policy, a Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and the National Institute of Health, NIH, the non-federal institutions, um, such as the Betty Ford Institute and the Hazleton Foundation, and internationally to the British, I'm losing my my, uh, place here, Parliament Drugs Misuse Task Force. He is currently an associate editor for the journals Addiction and the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, reviews, and chapters in the field of addiction. His clinical and research work has focused on addiction treatment and recovery process, which has included specific research on the effectiveness of mutual help groups, such as Alcoholics Anonymous and adjuncts to formal care. 
His additional research endeavors have focused on the transition and implementation of evidence-based practice, addiction and criminal justice, addiction treatment theories and mechanisms of action, and reducing stigma associated with addiction. He is a licensed clinical psychologist actively working with individuals and families with alcohol and other drug use disorders. Whew, that's a lot. <laughs> and the um, Recovery Research Institute, um, also called the RRI, is a scientific enterprise that will push the agenda for addiction recovery forward by both synthesizing the current evidence base and conducting high-quality, novel, recovery-relevant research. The goal is to disseminate the results such as that they may enhance the effectiveness of addiction treatment and empower individuals, families, communities, and other in our broader society to address these endemic problems with greater impact and efficiency. In recognition of the increased medical, social, and economic burden attributable to substance use disorders, the department is redoubling efforts to expand general knowledge of treatment and recovery to alleviate suffering associated with addiction. Under the leadership of Dr. John F. Kelly, the RRI will begin to push the agenda for addiction recovery forward by conducting high-quality, recovery-relevant research and disseminating and implementing results for the benefit of our communities and broader society. Excuse me. The RRI will become a center for training, promise, uh, for training promising scientists for careers in addiction and recovery research. And so if you want to learn more about the Institute and the work that they're doing, you can go to their website, which is www.recoveryanswers.org. So that is um, quite a mouthful and quite an impressive resume, Dr. Kelly, and I am really fascinated by the work that you're doing and um, that you're doing at, um, you know, uh, at the Institute. So maybe to start with, um, we, if you could tell us where you think the stigma of addiction stands today from a political and cultural perspective. Well, thank you, Amanda. Thanks so much um, for the kind introduction. I am very happy to be here on the Bubble Hour addressing this very important topic of addiction and stigma. Um, it's something that we still very much continue to struggle with, um, um, as you alluded to in the introduction. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we you know, I, I think we've made we've made some progress in the last 20 to 30 years, um, in part because of the science, uh, the neuroscience findings, and also increasing uh, sophistication of our of our research in, in genetics and mapping the human genome and also mapping genes to uh, behavior to some degree. So um, that's helped a little bit, but still, you know, we are still fighting stigma to a great degree. Uh, it turns out, actually, you know, when you look not just in the United States, uh, but all around the world, the uh, addiction seems to be just about the most stigmatized social problem that we have. Um, they did a study, actually, the World Health Organization conducted a study in 2001 across 18 different study, 18 different conditions, stigmatized conditions across 14 different countries. So this included things like being, being a criminal, being, having AIDS, um, as well as being a drug addict or an alcohol addict. And what they found out of these, in this list of 18 of the most stigmatized conditions, actually drug addiction was number one and alcohol addiction was number four. 
in this list of 18. We also know just domestically here in the United States that this, um, you know, this issue of stigma and the fear and shame that people perceive um, and have that keeps them from, it's, it's, it's one of the most significant barriers that prevents them from accessing treatment for substance use disorder. So, uh, you know, we've, we've, come, we've come a little ways, but we've got a long, long way to go. It's going to take a lot of concerted effort from multiple dimensions to help reduce the stigma. You know, one of the things that we can do, of course, in the meantime, while still addressing it, uh, stigma, is to uh, help end discrimination against people with, with addiction problems, um, both, uh, you know, when they're active, but also, and very importantly, when they get into recovery. Right, this is and, um, and I, I think this is just such an interesting thing. I, I, I feel like when there was a the famous actor who recently died of an o- overdose and there from heroin, and there was so much backlash that I read in the press and in social media, where people sort of concluded that an individual who had been in long-term recovery for over 20 years, according to reports and then relapsed and subsequently overdosed, there was real vitriol there that I read that said, you know, if somebody did this, then it was a, a moral failing. And it was it was so hard to be a person in recovery to read that on so many levels. Um, and it's, it's really hard to sort of get words around, um, you know, what the – what the actual process is. So I, for one, am, am happy that there's people like you, Dr. Kelly, who are out there putting scientific facts behind how that could happen to, to any one of, of, of us who are here hosting the show anyway. Um, that, that just creates a helpful construct for the dialogue, I think. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, one of the, one of the, no, firstly, uh, you know, a relapse after 20 years is extraordinarily rare. Uh, so that should be put mm-hmm. in context. You know, uh, to, for someone to relapse back to substance use after that period is very, very rare. Um, but it does happen. You know, th- th- this obviously does happen, but it, it's, it's, it's very rare. And, of course, if you're famous then that can, and you die, of course, that's going to get a lot of uh, media attention. Um, but it, I think it also highlights the fact that, um, this is a, it's a chronic illness, and people uh, with addiction, even though the majority of people with addiction, 60% plus, will achieve full sustained remission, is that you know people are susceptible to relapse over the long term, and it requires just the same as other kinds of chronic illnesses like diabetes. You have to keep monitoring it. You have to keep monitoring oneself and self-manage one's illness in you know every day of your life. Um, obviously, people set up their life so that becomes easy, but uh, you can't ever, you know, kind of put your guard down and, and pretend that you're suddenly not uh, an alcoholic or an addict. So can I, can I ask you a question? This is Catherine again, sort of on that point. I was just speaking to somebody today that when I got sober two years ago, I was very frightened and shocked to learn that I had late-stage symptoms of alcoholism, which I didn't realize when I was active. And then I further learned, and this is my question, that your disease can continue to progress even when 
in in my case, if I'm abstaining from alcohol, um, my disease could progress so that now it's been two years, but if I picked up a drink again, I would end up back where I was quicker and sort of further along. Um, what, what, what goes into that? Well, the, that is, we, we don't have any scientific basis for that. Uh, it's something that you do hear a lot, um, uh, you know, in, in, from different folks in recovery. Uh, and I think it was maybe talked about more in the, you know, in, in the 80s um, in treatment facilities that somehow the, the disease was like a cancer that progressed even if you weren't actively, you know, drinking or using other drugs. Um, but probably the, 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 the individual, what the person actually experiences is a, a loss of acquired tolerance but a memory the memory for the the amount of the substance that one used to consume when one was actively using in the, in the height of one's addiction, so that what happens is is that you've lost that acquired tolerance, so you no longer have that very high tolerance you had when you kind of left off, but you have the memory that mem- remembers this is how much you used to drink and use drugs. And so what happens is people will take a much higher dose than their brain and body would be accustomed to because they haven't used for a period of time, sometimes a long time. So it actually hits them extremely hard because of that mm-hmm. loss of acquired tolerance. And it seems like things are actually much, much worse. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Absolutely. And I uh, I hope to is, never um, find out, but I Yeah. <laughs> This is this is this is Amanda and this is an I think a unscientific thing. Um, but um, probably something that, well, I have in the past relapsed on. I know for me, uh, you know, because fortunately I haven't with alcohol, um, and but with um, cigarettes, I know for me, whenever I have tried to quit smoking cigarettes and I pick back up, you know, I start smoking again, I always smoke more. And I, I, you know, I, I think there's, a, you know, for me that the um, that your disease is doing push-ups. I do, I personally believe that there's something to it that you, um, it, you uh, just the way an addict's brain works as we try to make up for lost time. And that's my unscientific <laughs> opinion on that, just from my experience with quitting cigarettes. Dr. Kelly, this is Jean. Um, my question for you is: Is there, are we talking about sort of a parallel? between um, the neurological disease and then the psychological issue as well? Are they two separate things? Do they do they work in tandem but independently, and do they need to be looked at as two different things? You mean in terms of um, the impact uh, of addiction on the, on the brain or in recovery? I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Um, I, I think my question would be maybe in recovery. I guess that's my my main concern and my perspective, um, just to help us understand it better. Um, because we talk about behaviors, but there but behaviors seem to be one faucet, and some behaviors are are, are things we've taught ourselves as survival skills and coping skills. But then those those sort of come in tandem. Those maybe can be changed through behavior modification, but the neurology can't be changed. Does that? Do I have the correct understanding of of those two things? Are they separate? Well, you think about it. I mean, obviously, 
you know, the brain, everything is mediated through the brain, right? All of our thoughts are generated by the brain. Um, so psychology has a biological basis always. Mm-hmm. Um, and, there, and there are ways that we can change our brain and heal, heal our brain, help our brain get better. And, and the way that that happens typically is that we have, you know, one part of our brain, for example, our prefrontal cortex, where we do a lot of our thinking and judgment and, and make decisions. We can make those decisions with, you know, maybe that, that part of the brain that's working that can make, try to make better decisions that then actually can help heal the other parts of the brain. And so that's what the brain does is that it, the, the modules that are able to, that are working a little bit better uh, will we'll try and make, you know, try and, try and you know, heal uh, the other parts of the brain. Typically, you know, we obviously the, the, we have to make those decisions, and it's the decisions and the actions that follow those decisions which actually heal the brain in terms of recovery because typically what happens is people have to abstain for the brain to have a respite from the neurotoxicity of drugs. Uh, without that, the brain cannot recover while it's still being bombarded. So one has to make a decision that, okay, I'm, I, I really want to quit, and then the person has to get the help that's necessary or recruit the resources around them and, and, and latch onto those resources for that person to be able to remain abstinent for a while enough that the other parts of the brain and maybe the deeper subcortical areas of the brain can start to readjust and heal. Um, so, in other words, you have one part of the brain, in this case, the prefrontal cortex, that's actually helping to heal another part of the brain. And the brain does that. It uses the, the best functioning modules or the best parts of those modules to try and help uh, damage parts of the brain. That's, um, cool. this is Amanda, that's really interesting. And actually, that, I mean, that helps. Um, I know that's not really what you were getting at, but that helps. Explain. We we get questions from people who you know. There's a whole thing about day counting, and um, having sustained sobriety, and why it's important to um, you know. We, well, there's a whole debate about you know whether to count or not. And if someone slips for a day, um, you know, do they start their counting over? And um, there's a debate, and you know, there's there's um, a reason to you know for people to have personal opinion because there's an, the emotional factor too on um, getting discouraged, uh, you know, not wanting people to be discouraged because you know they they had a a slip for one day, but there's um, there's an actual physical side to that too where if you without completely abstaining, it, it your brain isn't healing the way that it needs to. To repair the damage, is that? Did I explain that properly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in other words, what you're saying it sounds like is that if you if you introduce the brain again, if you expose the brain once again to the drug, then then that will potentially it's like you know it's another it's another insult or you know another insult to the brain that can delay its recovery. Is that what you're you're getting at? Yeah, exactly, and so that's just—I guess—it's just a, a scientific way of explaining to people why, um, you know, when the people in recovery that you know that are trying to help you are encouraging people to have continuous sobriety, um, and it's it's to heal your brain because it does—it's it, it, a greater setback than just a, a day. 
I guess, is um, because of the actual chemical impact, the the physical impact that it can have on your brain. Yeah, and I mean, you know, so obviously, there's the, these, you know, the way that these, you know, token tokens work, the you know, the medallions and and the chips for lengths of sobriety, continuous lengths of sobriety, are very important, and and that that social reward and social praise can motivate people. Uh, and people are accountable. They feel accountable and, and, and have someone that they're accountable to or a group that they're accountable to. All of those mechanisms, we know that those mechanisms help motivate behavior and help motivate and help people stay on track. But after all, there is not, it's not just a matter of a slip. I mean, people can die by having just one slip. So there's right. a lot at stake. We're not talking, uh, you know, we're talking about deadly serious business here right um so yes um it is you know it's no wonder that these things are strongly encouraged i.e consecutive continuous abstinence and that's very strongly rewarded however i would say that you know if someone does have a slip after a month or three months they haven't lost the experience they may pick up a 24-hour chip but they don't have they haven't lost that sober experience and what we do know from longitudinal studies is that people generally what happens in recovery is that people gradually on average get longer and longer periods of sobriety in their course of recovery before they eventually mm-hmm. achieve that full full remission and, and full recovery and so people do they learn as they go it's a tr- bit of a trial and error experience where people will try certain things they'll find out what they can and cannot get away with um, and as they do that, they might, you know, they might bump along for a little while. They might slip and fall and get back up and then get back on, you know, the wagon, as it were, or get back into recovery again and say, well, you know, I really can't do that. I know, that, I know people told me that, but now I know myself I can't do that. And so people, you know, they learn as they go, um, but they don't, and therefore they don't lose the experience, that, but they might, you know, not have, you know, six months of sobriety, might, they might have to go back to, uh, you know, starting over in terms of their consecutive lengths of sobriety. But um, it's, uh, I can see, totally understand why the consecutive uh, sobriety is praised so much and encouraged so much because there is so much at stake. Right. So I guess when we talk about, this is Catherine, when we, when we talk about stigma, I guess if people are, experimenting with extended more and more periods of time of of recovery before they finally get to that full remission maybe is that what leads to this societal idea of it's a lost cause you know oh look at her she's been trying to stop drinking for five years now and keeps relapsing yeah well i mean is, i think in part kind of, yeah because people yeah can't see the 30,000-foot view. Uh, like you're alluding to, you know, people see these snapshots of, of behavior over short, discrete periods of time, um, but really it's a long-term, on average, it's a long-term process. And the studies that have been done, both, you know, longitudinal studies and also retrospective studies, looking back over many decades of people who have gone into recovery, uh, what you find is that it takes about five years on average in, in adult studies, in the studies where they've looked at adults with addiction problems, it takes about five years before people start seeking specialty help. 
specialty care for an addiction problem. So in other words, they might, might, might meet diagnostic criteria for, say, alcohol dependence five years before they'll actually start going to somebody and talking about it and trying to get some help. And, and part of the reason they don't is because of the fear, the shame, and the stigma that prevents them from doing it. So what happens is they'll try and uh, cut down or stop or try other, any other possible way to, to try and control their drinking or drug use so they don't have to go and talk about it. But eventually, and for some people they can, they're able to, to switch and stop and, and, and change their behavior. Um, they may you know, change their social group or do other things which we know are associated with recovery. For other people who have more severe and complex addiction problems, they tend to then, because they are unable to do, to stop by themselves, they need to get the specialty help after they get specialty help, it still takes, on average, about eight years after first seeking help before someone gets a full year of abstinence, a full year of remission. So that's a pretty long time, right? But you've got to remember, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, during that eight-year period, from the, maybe from the first time that somebody begins to open up and talk about it, maybe they go to treatment, maybe they go to a meeting, AA meeting, um, but it takes about eight years from that first time and about three to four treatment episodes before they get one full sustained year of remission. Now, during that time, they may get, you know, three months, six months, eight months, but not quite the full year. So I'm talking about a full year of full sustained remission. It can take about eight years on average. So that's a long time, right? So when, when as, you, as, you, as you mentioned, you know, when people are viewing this, they might think, oh, this is hopeless. You know, like this person's relapsed again. And, but the truth of it is, if you actually put it on a piece of paper and figured out, wait a minute, this person's actually been been sober more days, many more days than they've actually been using drink, uh, alcohol or drugs. Many more, typically. Once people start to, right. to shift and change towards towards uh, recovery. So you have to look at the, the picture of, of progress, not perfection, right? Yeah. Eventually it's what right. happens... <laughs> This you know, is eventually what happens is, of course, people do get the majority of people, as I mentioned, 60% plus, get that full year and more and go on to full sustained remission and full recovery. So that's actually the good news is that it's a good prognosis disorder. Um, you know, most people will become completely abstinent and symptom-free of addiction. You still have to deal with the, the realities of life and, and some of the difficulties in managing strong emotions and all of that stuff that comes along in abstinence and recovery. But um, the cravings and all of that goes away. This is Jean, Dr. Kelly, and you're speaking such a powerful message of hope right now because all three of us are, we hear regularly from people that are very discouraged and very ashamed when they relapse and, and just feel so terrible. And I think that hopelessness and that shame is, is a very real and very common thing. And what you're saying is so important. I, I want our readers to really grab onto, our listeners to really grasp onto this, that um, that um, relapse isn't failure. It's part of the it's part of the journey. And you get back up and you, you get back on that path to abstinence, right? But it's, I, I love your perspective of look at it in terms of, of your your days of relapse versus the days of abstinence, and 
uh, I know you're you're not speaking that as being permission to to slip up and <laughs> and um, cross over into using for a few days because you've been good for a long time. But it's really a message of hope, isn't it? That it it is progress, and progress can take a very long time. It's it's yeah, not and, and absolutely. You know, and and you think about you know it's not really you know I never really think about it as giving. I mean, I expect recovery. I expect people to to do the things that are associated with recovery, but I am always prepared for people uh, to relapse. But mm-hmm. I fully expect them to do the things and, and, and get into recovery and do the things that, because, you know, you don't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or, or a, you know, or a, an implicit idea that, oh, well, this is a chronically relapsing illness, so um, I'm expecting you to relapse. Um, that would not be the right way to, to frame it. I'm expecting recovery because we know that that's what happens. A lot of people get and stay in recovery, even immediately. Um, you know, for many people, it takes it takes a while. But um, so it's important to have that expectation, but also be prepared. You know, just the same as you would. You know, I'm not expecting to have a fire in my house, but or at work, but there's a fire drill. You know, that we have just in case. Um, so, but I'm expecting there not to be a fire. It's a fine line, isn't it? I I struggle with it myself in communicating with people. Um, they to try and be encouraging after relapse, but it is really a fine line between knowing it's possible and a danger, and and um, like you said, creating a, a an idea that it's permissible. So the goal is abstinence, right? Always abstinence. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, part of the shame, you know, is you know, one of the things I didn't mention is that there are two factors associated with stigma, which is cause, you know, which contribute to stigma, which is cause and control. Um, so, you know, people tend to be more sympathetic and compassionate towards people if they didn't cause it and they can't control it, right? So kind of like, mm-hmm. you, know, they, they, you know, they can't help it and um, it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. So... You know, if you, if you can say those two things about whatever the socially stigmatized um, uh, problem is, then it tends to elicit more sympathy and compassion. And I think with addiction, as uh, one of you alluded to earlier, is that people see, you know, people kind of relapsing and, and they think, well, they're choosing to do it. Mm-hmm. What we do know yeah, but- is, you know, sorry? Well, I, this is Catherine. I was just going to say that I was I was thinking about the the actor Russell Brand has written a great well he's written a few articles on his experience of addiction and recovery and one of them he says hey listen I'm paraphrasing but you know no other disease makes its patients so unappealing to the person who doesn't have the disease that because people, you know, maybe we have bad behavior while we're active. Um, maybe we get in trouble. And then you layer on that society's notion that, well, you could you could stop if you only had willpower, and it's a question of willpower. And we know from our own experiences that that's not true. But is there science behind that? Yes, because... We know that the brain becomes can become severely damaged, um, which creates problems in decision making and being able to follow through with those decisions. Uh, you know, we've always known this 
before with autopsy, you know, we, you know, before there was brain imaging, you could look at the brains after people had died who have alcoholism, for example. And when you look at severe alcoholics, their brain is uh, it's severely damaged. I mean, you're talking about a third of a loss in volume compared to somebody who's age, gender match control, who without alcohol dependence. So they've lost a third of their brain mass, um, and it weighs about a third, third less um, when, they've, when they've studied this in autopsy. And when you look now on brain imaging studies, you can see that people who have alcoholism actually have very shrunken cortices of the brain, and um, you know, the inner parts of the brain become enlarged, the ventricles of the brain. Um, and um, you know, just looking at pictures, when you see those brain imaging, you, you, you'll see very clearly just how the brain is going to be dramatically affected and how the, uh, the front prefrontal cortex is affected, uh, which prevents, even when people make a decision that I am going to follow through and do this and I'm not going to drink or use drugs anymore, um, that the, the overpowering nature of addiction in the brain just, you know, like a locomotive just runs straight through that and just, the brakes, the, the insufficient braking power to be able to put the brakes on because of the damage to I, the brain. I think that's helpful. There's, we we have a lot of listeners who are still actively drinking, and you know we hear a lot from people who say, "Why can't I just stop? Why, you know, I keep telling myself I'm going to stop. Why can't I?" And they're sort of always. You know, worrying and wondering about that, so I think that information is is chilling, but also helpful because it helps us say, right, there's there's reason for this, and if there's if there's a a reason and there's data, then that means there's a solution. Yeah, and it's not yeah. And we we're know bad better people. now than before exactly how we can how we can address it. Um, you know, the other thing I mentioned the structural changes, but there are also very significant functional changes in the brain and neurotransmission and the neurotransmitters in the brain and the dopamine system and serotonin and endogenous opioid systems in the brain. Many, many different neurotransmitters are affected, and there are, some of them are affected very, very dramatically, such as the dopamine receptor system, which gets downregulated because of the abnormally high release of dopamine, for example, in response to the high levels of drug intake or alcohol intake. Um, so when people's tolerance increases, they have to drink or use more, um, and then the brain tries to adapt to this abnormally high release of dopamine that gets released um, so that uh, it can accommodate it because it, it, it's too loud. The volume is too loud inside the brain because of this high release of dopamine. So the brain actually downregulates the receptors into which that dopamine goes. It's a bit like your your brain kind of sticking its fingers in its ears because the music's too loud. Sure. Um, but uh, as you turn up the volume, the brain sticks its fingers in its ears deeper and deeper as you turn up the volume because you say, I'm not getting this feeling that I used to get anymore, so I have to drink more or I have to take more. And your brain says, this is way too loud. This is too loud for me, and it's sticking its fingers in its ears more. And then what happens is is that if you try and stop, 
the brain has still got its fingers stuck in its ears, if you will. So what does that mean? It means you can't hear normal levels of pleasure, as it were. You've got this hedonic mm-hmm. deafness, right? Uh, oh. You just can't hear just when, you, you know, a sunny day is just not as, doesn't feel as good as it used to. Friends don't, you know, not as appealing as they once were. Having a nice meal, that doesn't really, you know, satisfy you the way that it used Because your brain has actually down-regulated these receptors into which this pleasure chemical called dopamine normally would fit. But what happens is when people abstain is that the brain will upregulate. It will change again. It will readjust, readapt to the absence. But that's what's so hard in early recovery because people have this malaise and this dysphoria, which is a function of this down-regulation of the dopamine to a large degree the dopamine reward pathway system and these receptors. But the brain does upregulate. But during that time, of course, it, it can be very, very, very difficult, especially in that first 90 to 90 days to, to six months. Right, and that's when people, you know, they say, I just want to drink so I can feel better. Like they just, it's, it's, it's really hard to push through that period of time and know that it's going to, it doesn't feel like it's going to get better. Absolutely, and, and that's what, because they're used to that very high volume dopamine release, which can only be triggered by that concentrated volume of drug. Why? Only because your brain's actually used to it. But your brain will readjust. It will readjust to normal levels of pleasure again. So you actually, after a period of absence, you're going to start to feel better. You'll begin to just experience a good movie again. It feels good. Laughing with friends actually feels good again. So all of that, but that takes a little bit of time, and that's why people need so much support especially early on in those early months because the brain is really, you know, having to go through a lot of changes in abstinence. This is Jean, and I fear a little bit if, uh, as we communicate the message that the brain heals itself and and repairs some of the damage that it may be interpreted by some people, especially those in early recovery because um, uh, we all, I think, in early recovery kind of reject the idea that we're going to have to be abstinent for life. So we're not talking, or maybe we aren't. Maybe you can explain it to us, Dr. Kelly. So when you talk about um, the brain being healed and repaired and re-regulating the dopamine, is it, does that mean that um, healing that brain, healing that addicted brain, do we define healing as being content, um, symptom-free of addiction, as you said earlier, and content without alcohol? Or could people interpret that as, as saying um, that they can moderate then? Because that's my worry, is that the, the idea, we may be creating the impression that the brain will be healed and then you'll be okay and you can drink normally again. No, no. The, 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 the parts of the brain that uh, still remain affected, one of the most important is, is memory. And, and the memory parts of the brain and the hippocampus and the amygdala and the emotional component of the brain that never forgets the the experience the, the experience of very potent reinforcers. Um, people, we know that when people begin to use people who have been severely dependent on alcohol or another drug, and they abstain even for years, decades, is that the brain remembers very well the aspects, all the aspects and, and associations associated with the exposure to that drug. 
So what you see is when people are reintroduced to the drug or, or reintroduce themselves to the drug, even decades later, there is a reinstatement of addiction that happens. It happens as quickly, it, it, the speed of that reinstatement is correlated with how severely they addicted they were when they stopped. And so typically what we see with dependence, with addiction, is that there's pretty rapid reinstatement of the disorder within 30 days after starting. That is Even so important. <laughs> so important yeah. for people to understand. So it is a permanent change that occurs in the brain. And it's a permanent change, yeah. And we're not, we don't fully understand exactly what that because we know that the brain actually, you know, even after 18 months, you know, we have, you know, we don't have great, we have imaging data, you know, but it, it shows, you know, when you look at 18 months of abstinence, you see that the brain, you know, it will light up uh, as much as somebody, a, a normal control subject. Um, so it looks like their brain's kind of fully recovered. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean, of course, that they, you know, to your question, doesn't mean that they can, you know, just relax and go and do whatever they want and then, um, you know, they're kind of cured. You know, that's definitely not the case. But it just looks at, functionally, it's looking similar to somebody of their own age and gender who hasn't used drugs. Um, but they're still very susceptible to, to relapse. And this is, this is the thing that, you know, we can't emphasize enough, of course, is that you have to be, you cannot be too careful in recovery because there's so much at stake. And you have to really take it uh, every single day and monitor and manage yourself knowing that you've got this deadly disease which is killing a lot of people. Yeah, and th this is Catherine. We, I mean, we talk a lot about that very concept on this show and, and we also talk about the importance of having a recovery community of people who are, you know, at varying stages in long-term recovery as well to kind of help surround the individual and, and keep us all together. Um, is there any, or what kind of research um, is going into the helpfulness or the efficacy or the, you know, whatever, uh, of, you know, mutual help groups or recovery communities? There's a lot. There's been a lot, of, lot, a lot of research on that because it seems to be that people with addiction problems all kinds of addiction problems, alcohol, other drugs, as well as gambling and sex and food, all these things that people tend to get uh, addicted to, um, their solution tends to also lie in aggregating in social groups in order to recover. Now, there may be a neurobiological basis for that in that, you know, the release that comes about when we're in together with other people like um, oxytocin and dopamine, for example, that gets released when we're around other people, that, that uh, those increase in those neurochemicals gets triggered by group being, you know, being a, a, a member of AA and being a part of a group, having a sponsor and doing all those things, may actually upregulate some of those dopamine uh, D2 receptors more rapidly. Uh, there is some evidence that in studies with primates where primates are individually housed, primates who are actually addicted to cocaine who are, you know, individually housed versus socially housed, um, 
that individually housing monkeys will actually decrease their dopamine receptors. But when they're intru introduced back into the troop with other monkeys, their, their D2 receptors increase, and that's protective against relapsed cocaine. And it may be that extrapolating a bit from that is that we know there are neurobiological changes that go on as a function of being in social groups. And it may be that because of the, down, the deep down regulation of dopamine D2 receptors that occurs in drug addiction, alcohol and drug addiction, is that somehow being in a social group may accelerate that change so that people feel better sooner. So that might be a neurobiological explanation as to why. And of course, at the psychological behavioral level, you know, just being around other people, there's exchange of information, there's exchange of, of know-how, right, of experience that people who have been sober one, five, ten years can say, this is what I did. These are the things that helped me. Uh, you know, I'd strongly suggest this uh, or recommend that because this seems to be, you know, how people, from what we know, you know, from the millions of people who've recovered in uh, groups like AA, that that this is what works, you know, this is what works, this is what doesn't work. And so that collective experience can be put to good use. Yeah, this is Jean, I just wanted to say it's just fascinating to hear the science behind why mm -hmm. it feels so good to talk to another person in recovery. I, I really isolated in my addiction, and I also isolated for the first part of my recovery. And the, the, I was probably six months um, sober before I talked to another alcoholic, and and that was such a powerful experience. It, it happened sort of um, just by chance, and and it it made me suddenly understand how important other people were going to be for the rest of my life. <laughs> in making this a, a joyful experience. So it's really interesting to hear the, the science behind that. that, that uh, and and to, to feel the emotion of it is, is so powerful, but to, to connect the two is really fascinating. Definitely. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, it creates also, being with others, it creates, you know, what we call a new social norm for recovery, right, is that there's... Uh, that sense of camaraderie, belonging, that sense of universality, the installation of hope um, that comes along with seeing all these people that, wait a minute, all these people are in recovery. Um, and this is like, look at all these people. This is what they're doing. They're actually getting and staying in recovery and getting on with their lives and they're laughing. And, and to see that is extremely powerful. You know, that observational learning, being able to see and witness and experience that, observe it. You know, uh, you know, my one of my friends and colleagues, Bill White, says, you know, the recovery is contagious too. You know, mm -hmm. there's, these, there's been these social network studies uh, that have been done that how we can get influenced uh, by people in our social network uh, in a negative way, but we can also get influenced by people in our social network in a very positive way. And so creating... So norm and being exposed to this, you know, a norm for recovery can pull people, like like a gravitational pull of a, of a large mass object, it can pull people in that direction. So how does stigma, this is Catherine, how does stigma keep people away from seeking out exactly what they need, which amongst other things is community? Yeah, 
community's right. Um, well, I, I think it does because people go through a, a shift in identity um, as they transition from somebody who is a person who's addicted to somebody who's someone in recovery. And there is a, a shift that has to happen as people go through the stages of change uh, where they, you know, are afraid to think they have a problem, then they entertain the possibility that they might have a problem, and then they really say that they do have a problem, then they start doing something about it. And then they start to think, well, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not an addict anymore. I'm not someone who's addicted. I'm actually, I'm actually somebody in recovery. And so there's a shift, an identity, a kind of a social identity shift that occurs in people as they go through that stage. But while they're going through that stage, uh, there's a lot of stigma which prevents them from, from accessing help, of course. And even in recovery, people also experience and feel a lot of stigma and shame and fear of, of even self-disclosure, even when they're in recovery, of course. This is Jean, and it seems to me that the, the um, cure for stigma <laughs> is education. And is that the goal of the Recovery Research Institute, is education? Or what, what's the plan to help address the stigma that you're describing? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a, a part of it from what we can do. You know, I think there's two main ways that we can help reduce stigma. One is through providing education, educating people about the nature of the illness itself. Another one is actually, um, uh, I, I think it was Amanda, you mentioned at the beginning about uh, 20 to 40 million people in long-term recovery uh, is that, yeah. you know, you're surrounded by people. We are surrounded by people in recovery, but we don't even know it. Uh, and so, as you guys know, there's been a push nationally to put a face and a voice on recovery and start talking about uh, being in recovery. Um, that can also help, you know, because then people, you know, Michael Botticelli uh, from the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy came and helped, helped launch our uh, Recovery Research Institute in October, and I was very grateful to him that he came and, and, and did that. But he said, as part of his comments and remarks, he said, you know, and he's someone who's openly talks about being in long-term recovery himself. He says, you know, it's hard to hate up close, right? Mm -hmm. Prejudice. Yeah, right. You know, prejudice happens at a distance. Um, and so... Uh, if you're up close, if if your friend or your neighbor or your teacher or somebody is in, you, you know them as a person in long-term recovery, then somehow that dispels uh, a lot of the myths and stereotypes that, well, I mean, they're just like me. They look normal. They look, they're, having, they're getting on with their life. They're just regular people. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're not the kind of headline stories anymore that, that are getting pushed about, you know, banded about in the media. Rather, they're your next to neighbor your, or the person down the street or, like I said, you know, the person working at Starbucks is, is in long, you know, the recovery because you start to see people because you hear people talk about being in recovery. And so there's right now there's a big push for that. So there's these two ways that I think we are beginning to address the stigma of addiction via people disclosing and talking about the fact of being in long-term recovery that people, again, can see visibly that this person's, normal, functioning, productive, safe, tax-paying citizen, you know. Um, and um, in terms of what we do at the Recovery Research Institute at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital is that we want to be able to uh, 
take care of the other pieces, which is the, the, the science. You know, what do we know about addiction as a disease? Uh, we've learned a lot about the genetics. We know about half the risk of addiction is conferred by genetics, just what you're born with. But just like other illnesses, it's an interaction between those genes and the environment, environmental experiences and exposures to happen that you know, happen throughout our lives. That's why some of us are more susceptible to cancer and heart disease and a variety of other diseases, and some of us are more accept, uh, uh, you know, uh, more um, vulnerable to addiction. But depending on different exposures. Um, so educating about people about the nature of, of, of addiction, the neuroscience of addiction, and what we've learned, how, as I've already mentioned, you know, people's brain functionally and structurally becomes damaged and impaired, which creates this loss of control or impairment in control, and that's why it's so hard for people to um, to understand it is is because uh, in some ways and sometimes people seem to be making making good calls and following through with the decisions, but. At other times, they just hopelessly cannot, no matter what's at stake, even despite of devastating consequences, people seem unable to control. And this work is so baffling, but we understand that now much better. So being able to get that message across through um, synthesizing and disseminating the science of what we understand about addiction, I think, can also help people understand the nature of the illness, which can reduce stigma and discrimination. That's very powerful. Yeah, um, I was just going to say, um, you know, just the uh, on the movement when you talked about up the, well, there, I had so many thoughts just now, but one thing um, when you talked about something, you know, up close, but there's been different things in the news lately, and you know, yeah, I was talking to someone and they were saying, well, you know, that person, you know, they were an addict, and they were making the argument, well, they had a choice, you know, they 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 made a choice to pick up and. You know, I I think it's interesting. You know, we may be have it in our genetics that to become an addict, but we don't know that when we start drinking, and we don't we don't really know it, and we don't know it until it's too late. You know, no. generally speaking, and and um, you know, but trying to communicate that to people in a in a way that's helpful is is really it's 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 really challenging. To say, you know, people just they dismiss it and say, well, you had a, you know, that person had a, a choice to pick up a drink, um, and it does. I mean, there there's a there, there is a huge piece of breaking down the stigma to that whole thing, uh, the, you know, the whole movement of of people speaking out and saying something. Because I know with um, some recent, you know, events that happened in, in the news, someone was talking about it to me. And saying, oh, this person, you know, they, you know, they, they just did this, you know, they picked up, and it's their fault that they died. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm in recovery, and you know, I know I do my best to, you know, I have to work hard at staying sober every day, and you know, and I and I try to explain things, but it's it's interesting, just the simple. I didn't even think of it this way until you just said it. Just the simple fact that I say I'm in recovery to that person, never mind what my explanation is. I didn't realize how much that is changing what they think because all of a sudden, um, you know, their follow-up to my statement is a, is a lot softer. And mm-hmm. they're thinking because they're standing in front of me going, oh, wow, well, Amanda um, is in recovery and I need to think about what, I, you know, casting this, um, you know, casting this, uh, these disparaging remarks uh, 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 against addicts and alcoholics 
you know, and for, when I'm standing right next to someone who is. Right. Um, absolutely. So it. it and um, I feel like I, this is Catherine. I I feel like saying, explaining the science behind why when when somebody picks up and then becomes addicted and then in the even in the face of major consequences continues to use i think sometimes people jump to the conclusion that what we're saying is you know if if i drive drunk and get into an accident and hurt people that i shouldn't have consequences that's not actually what we're saying what what we're trying to explain though i mean unless somebody disagrees but <clears throat> I, I think people leap to that conclusion. That's part of the stigma too. That by saying, "Oh, well, mm-hmm. now you're trying to take," you're trying to say, Amanda, just because you're an you're an alcoholic, you don't have responsibility for your actions. That's that's, that's a. I think it's a careful. That's not true. Uh, right. Right. It, it's that's not what we're saying. We're explaining why despite every morning me waking up and saying, today I'm not going to drink, I drank every day, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I, and once I started, I could not stop. There was, and I'm a, I'm a smart person. I'm an established, you know, professional. I, you know, on, by the, on all paper, I've got everything in line. And yet if I drink, I cannot stop. There has to be a reason for that. And it's not that I'm... I lack willpower. I have willpower in all kinds of different ways in my life, just not this particular one. I just think that's an important kind of distinction because sometimes people think that means we're, we're not taking responsibility. This is Jean, and I, I think one of the things that makes it hard for people to understand that is because for someone who is a normie, as we call it, that can drink normally, drinking is associated with fun. So they think, well, you just want to have fun all the time. You just want to have drinks and be fun, fun all the time. And what they don't realize is once that brain change has occurred, you're now drinking just to feel normal or just to Mm -hmm. feel okay. And, And it's not fun. It's not fun at all. There's nothing fun about it. And that's the thing that I think that's where the disconnect is. And so it's so great that we're getting this tool tonight of helping people understand that what we're talking about is a change in the way our brains work, that that make that experience completely different in addiction. You no longer feel the fun that that other people feel with alcohol. And I think if we can help people understand that, and that you know you're just you're just trying to feel normal. It's not fun. It's not partying. It's just it's really just trying to. to it, it. I sometimes say, it's for an addict. It's an urge. It's a compulsion. The same way if you try to hold your breath or not pee, or not drink water. <laughs> that impulse mm-hmm. that our brain tells us when it's time to do that. It's That urge is just as, as powerful to Absolutely, an addict whose yeah. brain is telling them, you need this to survive. And there's nothing fun about that. I mean, we've all been in that position of being thirsty or, you know, not having a bathroom when we needed it. That's not a fun feeling. And that's the mm-hmm. closest way that I can help people understand what it feels like to need a drink or to need something that you are addicted to. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, the way that a term that's often used with addiction in the brain and the neurocircuitry of reward, as you may have heard, is that the brain 
that neurocircuitry gets hijacked, right? It, the people talk about that word being hijacked. That's a good, that's a very good, I think, way of thinking about it because the person's agency, this sense of agency and control has become taken over in a way by this addiction which has hijacked the brain. And so mm -hmm. people then are drinking really against their own will. You know, they're mm -hmm. drinking against their will or using drugs against their will. They're saying, I don't want to do this, but they're finding themselves breaking that promise again and again and again and again and again over, no matter what seems to happen. And that's why, it, you know, people become so desperate, so demoralized, and have that sense of remorse and guilt and self-hatred is because they, they, they see other people doing it and changing and shifting, but they feel that they can't. Um, but that's the nature of, of, of the way that the brain has been damaged and changed as a function, just like you said. They, you've got the disease and they haven't. That's the difference. Just the same as you had any other disease. Um, uh, you've got the disease, which means you've got to get treatment, you've got to get the help that you need for it. That's, this is Amanda. That is really interesting um, to me. And, you know, I, I'm just trying to think of, I think that the science is amazing in being able to, you know, have that science. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to think of how you may communicate that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I was t I was talking to someone again, and it, it, it was some, it, it came up somehow that I don't drink. I said, they asked me something. I said, oh, no, I don't drink. And they said, oh, yeah, I don't, I just have, you know, a couple beers on Friday nights because I, you know, I, I found that I wasn't feeling good, so, you know, I really cut back. And I, and I, and I, and I said, you know, that didn't work for me. You know, I wish it, it, it could have, but, you know, I needed to stop completely or whatever. And um, the um, person I was speaking to, you know, um, very much, they were. They said, "Well, you know, they were basically implying that they had great will um, and control." <laughs> and and I said, "Well, you know, and I, and I just, you know, sometimes it's it's just really hard to argue." I I just kind of gave up and said, "You know, well, you know, I don't know how to explain it. You know, unless you're an addict, you know, you don't understand. You know, I I wish it was that simple for me." Is there any? Um, I mean, I don't. I don't think. I don't know that there is an answer. Is there any way? Any um, without you know getting into too many details? Is there any way of communicating that to people? I, I mean, I like that the hijack. How you explained it with um, being hijacked. I'm just trying to think if there's any other way to communicate that to, to people who are not non-addicted. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are there are ways, clever ways, creative ways of being able to communicate it. But you know, essentially, is that your brain is different. You know, people who who have yeah. addiction, their brain is is different, and it seems to be, for at least those who've had, you know, addiction problems, real addiction problems, is that it it it, it always stays like that. Once you you know, as they say, you know, once you become a pickle, you can't go back to become being a cucumber. Right, um, and, and so it's just the the way it is. It's um, you know you've got it, and 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 and, you, and you're having to deal with it. But you know, I think really, you know, communicating that fact that that you know, whatever way people do it, uh, and some people will say, you know, I've you know I've I had a I've had a problem with alcohol, and I and I quit. I can't handle it. I can't do it. My brain can't take it. Um, you know, I know I'm, you know, uh, my brain is different. I'm, you know, 
uh, I've got this disease of addiction and I and I choose to to stay away from from drinking, you know, or taking any any drugs now. You know, so people people do it very differently in different ways uh, to get the message across. But I don't know, you know, per se of, of of a particular way that. But I think one can be creative. Of course, you could, you know, you could learn a little bit more, you know, neuroscience to make it a little more specific. But I'm not sure, you know, that might buy you some currency. I don't know. This is Amanda. In that situation, I think I would have said to that person. Um, you know what? Good for you. You managed to moderate before your brain changed its function. Changed. I wish. I wish yeah. I had seen those signs because I waited too long and my brain changed. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't we have and, an, and an episode back. coming up? Don't we have an episode coming up of what do you say when somebody asks? I think we do. Oh, I think. Well, yeah. We. I think we. We'll be talking about that, and I think in part next week. And we've talked. We've certainly talked about it before. And now we um, can tackle them with our understanding of science, ladies. That's right. I know. Well, <laughs> you got me going. Give it, on, the, on a given this, night, I will get into all that with someone. You know, I think you know on this particular <laughs> night, I was just kind of like whatever. But <laughs> sometimes I'm like, oh, you don't want to get me started, Mister. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, I, but it also, I mean, I guess my question also leads me to, as a society, I think as more and more of us speak up and as we, you know, um, you, you know, as we get, uh, as people get educated, I think, you know, that will do a lot to break down the stigma because it, you know, there's other things where, you know, this is, you know, again, people look at this as a moral failing, and it's not a moral failing. It's there's there's actual science behind it, and I think that's so important. Um, and because it's not just people on the outside; it's people that suffer from addiction that you know feel that they have a more you know a moral failing, and that you know that really keeps people stuck. And right. so I think it's I think it's you know hopefully people will listen to this tonight and realize you know. I look at it now and say, you know, it, 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 I, you know, I'm not, I, I am not ashamed that I'm an alcoholic. It was, I was, you know, there's, I definitely have, um, the, there's genetic factors, there's um, environmental factors, and, you know, and then there's my part in the, you know, in the whole process by just simply picking up a drink as um, people in society do, and, you know. But I didn't know when I did that that I was going to become an alcoholic, and um, I, you know. But I don't feel shame because once I understood that, you know, I did something about it, and right, right. you know, and then and to me, it's 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 uh, it's not it's not what we do; it's it's what we do about what we did um, that makes all the difference. You know, one of the things that's happened um, is that we have. You know this issue of you know moralistic approach and judgmental and punitive approaches. Uh, we found that that really has not worked. You know our, our war on drugs approach has really not worked. I, I, I think Amanda, you know that I was down at the White House. I was I spoke at the White House in in December at the first ever National Drug Policy Reform Summit, mm -hmm. and the summit actually was uh, centered around reducing stigma and how do we do that. And so I actually was speaking there on some of the research I've done looking at the language that we use, terminology and language, and how we describe these problems, because actually 
the kind of language that's been used, you know, calling people drug abusers or substance abusers, alcohol abusers, and so on, uh, is really tied in with this notion of uh, perpetration. You know, perp- you know, you're the perpetrator and you're abusing the substance, as opposed to having right. an addiction or a substance use disorder. And um, yeah. I actually, uh, you know, I actually did some experimental work where. I actually randomly assigned, I was, I was looking to see whether it made a difference to people's perception, so I randomly assigned a vignette which described the same person, but either as someone having uh, being a substance abuser or as having a substance use disorder. That was the only difference in these vignettes. Otherwise, the story was the same of this person who was in a drug court situation, and they'd violated probation, and they were up for, to see the judge, and in half the vignettes, uh, the person was described as, as having a substance use disorder. The other half who was described as, have, as being a substance abuser. And I randomly assigned this vignette to, to over 500 doctoral-level mental health clinicians. The ones that got the substance abuser vignette were much more likely to think the person deserved punishment and, le- and, and not treatment than people who got the same vignette but where the person was described as having a substance use disorder. Interesting, huh? Just wow. That, wow. Just that shift in the, in the way that it was the person was described in exactly the same scenario. So, you know, that that, that kind of has implications. You know, and one of the, you know, our, our first cousins in, in, in addiction has been um, people with eating-related problems. You know, people with eating-related problems are, are uniformly described as having eating disorders, never as food abusers. <laughs> Yet in the addiction right. field, we tend to uh, describe people as abusers and drug abusers and, and instead of people with substance use disorders. And when you think about it, describing someone as having a substance use disorder just naturally evokes more of a health or public health or clinical term, right, and phenomena. But uh, describing someone as a substance abuser or an alcohol abuser naturally kind of evokes uh, uh, more of a, uh, the, the, the person has is is to blame. You know, it should be more like a child abuser. Right. Pub- yeah, I, I, yeah. I was just thinking child abuser in my head when you were saying that. Yeah. You know, and it's and just so you know, it's an awful thought. Yeah. One of the things is that we're trying to change again in, in, in stigma is the way that we actually talk about these problems. When we describe them as substance use disorders or alcohol use disorder, as opposed to drug abusers or alcohol abusers, uh, I think we're going to start to move towards more medically accurate and scientifically accurate terms that will, again, alleviate the stigma. Because, you know, like I showed in that study is that people, and by the way, I replicated that and got even stronger effects in a general population sample. Um, And so just exposing people, even implicitly, to these terms, it tends to evoke more of a punitive and negative bias. So we have to watch what we say and how we say it and how we describe these problems and people with these problems because it really does seem to matter. What's what's the starting point for making that change then? Is it is it the um, uh, medical community that needs to start talking in, in those types of terms about the diagnosis or is there sort of a social or a reporting angle to it. What's what's the plan of, what's the best, the fastest way to implement those changes, in your opinion? Uh, I think you know it's going to take time because language changes take time. In the mental health field, for example, uh, notice the, notice now we use the term mental health. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, we describe it as mental health disorders, not mental illness usually, because mm -hmm. there's been a shift. Because the mental health community said, you know, we, we're gonna, we, want, we, want, we want people to talk about us or uh, talk about this issue as mental health, not mental illness. Again, it's a very different spin, you know. What do we talk about? We don't right. talk about disease management. We talk about recovery management now in addiction. Again, it's a positive as opposed to a negative. And it takes time. Right. You know, people used to be talked about as schizophrenics. Now we talk about people with schizophrenia. We have person, mm -hmm. what they call person-first language. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of these things, you know, from the people who suffer from these disorders themselves, their own preference, how they would like to be referred to, which I think is ultimately respectful um, of people who do suffer from these illnesses, that we should respect their wishes. But also, it may have connotations that induce, you know, implicit biases towards people that increase stigma. And I think that's why ultimately it's important uh, that we do it. And it's going to take time. Ultimately, it's just going to take time. You have to be persistent. We have to keep putting it out there that this is the way that we want these uh, disorders described. We don't want people called drug abusers or alcohol abusers. For these reasons, um, we want people to be described as a person having an alcohol use disorder or a person having a drug use disorder. That's a very different connotation, and it seems to be uh, much more conducive to eliciting more therapeutic thoughts as opposed to more let's lock them up and throw away the key kind of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I think everybody's got a responsibility. I just had a letter we, we, uh, a letter published in the Globe today because we wrote in, uh, my, myself and two of my colleagues wrote in, letters to the editor of the Globe, Boston Globe, because, uh, you know, the, one of the reporters um, uh, was describing, or um, Deval Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts, was describing the heroin epidemic as a drug abuse problem. So we said, you know, we wrote a letter and, and said, this is not the way to talk about it. We need to talk about it as drug use disorders, um, not as drug abusers and drug abuse. And they published the letter. So the things like that that we can do that eventually will start to have a growing impact. Uh, you know, the research that I've published on these studies, that, got, that went all over the place. That went all over the media. It was, it was uh, picked up left, right, and center. It was good. And people are beginning to shift in terms of the way that they describe and talk about these problems. Right up from the White House, that's why I was there last December, because they knew of my research, and they, you know, they publicized it. They, you know, we wrote a blog. We, we, you know, we've done all kinds of things to help uh, shift the way that we talk, talk about these things, but it's going to take time because our language is kind of, it becomes automatic and second nature. You know, if I had to think about every word I said, you know, we'd be here all night, right? If each of us had to really <laughs> right. think about it. But we have these very automated action patterns of language which enable us to speak quickly. But uh, in other words, so we have to kind of slow down and maybe correct ourselves. Oh, well, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say substance abuse, I meant substance use disorder, uh, and uh, backtrack and, and try and change. But we become more aware of it, we become more conscious, we get a conscience about it, and then we start to change. And we model the behavior, which is very important. Um, Dr. Kelly, right. this is Jean, and I, I, just throughout our conversation tonight, I'm, I'm almost I'm shaking. I'm feeling physically um, affected by the power of the scope of your work. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you were able to speak at the White House and that you are having the broad audience that you are because your work is just 
it, it's it's making such a difference to so so many people, and um, I just I, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude and excitement for these changes that lie ahead, and for the hope and the the positive impact it's it's going to have and resonate forward for for decades. It's it's just so exciting. I, I'm just thrilled to be part of this conversation. Well, thank you for saying that. I hope you know. Let's hope we can keep it going, keep the momentum going. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a. It's it has definitely grown. You know, I, I I see just in the last twenty years how much things have changed. How we've got this kind of recovery-oriented uh, movement. That people are thinking about this much more. You know, we've we've got a major public health crisis on our hands. It seems to be not epidemic but endemic. You know, it's almost like we've we've accepted it. We've become inured to it, but. We have to we have to address it because it's it's such a huge burden on families and individuals as well as society. So we you know we've got a lot of work to do. But I think equal to the, to the disease is this is this buoyancy and, and hope for the change. And, and there's a lot of a lot of positive things happening, which is it's a great feeling. Like I share that sense of hope that we can do something that will keep keep the keep the momentum going. Um, absolutely. Um, Catherine, do you have any closing thoughts? We're, we're actually getting near the end. Do you have anything that you want to um, add? Right. Yeah, thank you. I just, I really, I'm so moved. I was just struck speechless there by the, this has been a profound message of hope, I think, and I was sort of jotting down notes as we were going along, and I am thinking to myself, you know, 60% plus will sustain will achieve remission and they can sustain it. And if we monitor and maintain, we can do it. And if we talk about this in terms of recovery instead of in terms of, you know, some sort of relapse as being inevitable, um, it's this is just amazing. And it's it starts with, me as a person in long-term recovery and then my essential purpose of you know maintaining my recovery and then helping other alcoholics achieve sobriety that's um it's this is amazing i'm i'm really grateful to be part of this conversation thank you dr kelly oh thank you my pleasure and um yeah, I want to echo, I am just, uh, I well, with this meeting with you before and hearing about the work that you're doing, I am just blown away, and it's, it, it really is, I, I believe it's going to make such a difference. And um, I know we we talked about this before, um, well, I should say Catherine and Jean and I talked about this before. We'd love to have you back on the show again, and we can, you know, continue this conversation. I I, um, I feel like there's so much so much to talk about with this and, and and it's um it's amazing to me the progress that's been made just in the short amount of time that um I know I've been well aware I guess involved aware of um you know what's what's all happening in the recovery community um so I thank you for being on and and do, I didn't know if you had any closing thoughts before we wrap up the show Dr. Kelly um, no, I don't think so. I just wanted to thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a really great honor and, and uh, pleasure for me tonight. Um, I would just say, you know, also, you know, to check out the recoveryanswers.org uh, website. Just it's an information resource. 
There's also a nice video on there. It's just a five-minute video uh, which talks about, you know, some of the things that I've mentioned tonight, but in a very, I think it's a very hopeful video, and it's meant to be hopeful um, for families and individuals suffering. Um, so that can be can be inspirational, and um, so I'd say check that out. Uh, if I may also just mention, we have a free treatment right now. It's a study that's funded from the National Institutes of Health um, at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, we are uh, providing free treatment as part of a study. It's a, it's a psychosocial treatment for <coughs> addiction for young people between the ages of 14 and 21. So if anybody's listening out there that uh, needs treatment, uh, it's a 10-week treatment, group treatment. Um, give us a Excellent. call and we and and uh, see if we see if you're eligible for participation. So it's, it's a free treatment. Yeah. Is there a phone number for that, Dr. Haley, that they can call? Yeah, it's six one seven six four three five nine two seven six one seven six four three five nine two seven. Or they can also just email addiction at partners dot org. That's addiction at partners dot org. Yep. Yeah. What's okay. the time frame for that? Will that be available for a period of time? Uh, what was that? How how long of a period of time will that be available for? Because we do we we're available for download um, after we broadcast. So I want to make sure that there's if there's an expiry date <laughs> on that, uh, we put but some time frame on it. It'll end probably um, at the end of 2014. Okay. The free okay, time. Well, that's that's excellent, and um, we will, um, when we post the show, there will be a link to your website um, in in the show that people can follow and um, get the, the, the contact submission form is on there as well as the phone number. And okay. um, I would also um, encourage people to visit the site on a regular basis because you publish um, new research all the time and new articles and um and I, I imagine different studies and programs where people may be able to, you know, find additional resources. So, um, uh, again, that is www.recoveryanswers.org, and we will post the link on our um, on with this show as well. And Great. actually, Thank I will um, get my act together and get it on our website too, so it's it's a, in a permanent place. Very cool. Thanks so much for doing that. Thank you, Dr. All Kelly. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you're going to invite me back. I look forward to that. Yes, absolutely. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll get in touch with you next week, and we'll we'll plan something. Um, so again, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, fantastic. I hope you know a lot of people listen to the show. Um, I think it'll be. It's so helpful and, and inspiring. And. Um, and uh you know just a huge step towards reducing um you know stigma which is a huge step towards recovery so as we sign off as we do with every show we'd like to direct you to shining strong's website which is shiningstrong.org and on there you will find links to all of our resources including the bubble hour and crying out now and links to some of our other initiatives we are involved with for recovery advocacy and if you would like to go directly to the Bubble Hours website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. 
And if you would like to, again, learn more about the Recovery Research Institute, you can go to www.recoveryanswers.org. And we thank you for listening to the Bubble Hour tonight, and we hope you have a great evening. Good night, everyone. Good night, Good night. Everybody. Thank you. Yeah.